You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. When you buy an apartment, are you buying two bedrooms, two bathrooms, an open plan kitchen, living, dining area and a car space or are you buying a lifestyle? Does a community within a complex evolve over time or has it been deliberately conceived and created as a consequence of the target market the apartments were originally pitched to? Do buyers care more about the location, the finishes, the amenities and the builder or the fancy name? In this episode, we are going to look into why property developers would invest in marketing and how branding influences the decisions of apartment buyers. Today, we're talking to Katrina Burgess, better known as Kat, Strategy Director at the Frost Collective, a design consultancy that has worked with many large organisations in the property and built environment sector. Kat has over 20 years' experience in marketing residential property developments, and this includes developing brand strategies to promote a sense of uniqueness and creating place visions to help developers to deliver the types of places people want to live and work in. Her property marketing expertise includes many of Australia's largest urban renewal projects, including Central Park, Green Square, Key Quarter, Darwin Waterfront and Australian Technology Park, as well as international projects in China, Korea and Auckland. Now, thank you for joining us, Kat. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for being here. Um, I mean, I think it's kind of like the ultimate um, thing to sell, right? You know, you haven't actually been, hasn't not even built, it's just a concept and you have to get someone to sign a contract for something that could be, you know, their biggest decision of their life rather than, say, buying a T-shirt. How does that whole process work? You know, how does the the marketing, you know, work to actually create that kind of element of scarcity, I guess? Well, absolutely right. You're selling the dream, right? And so a lot of what we're doing is helping a developer to reach their target market, Mm. but also in a really meaningful way, because I personally totally agree with what you're saying. It's it's like the biggest decision you're going to make in your life, like Mm. probably the biggest amount of cash you're ever going to put down for anything, your home, right? So you want to make sure that you're uh, accurately creating a sense of what you're creating, particularly Mm. when it's off the plan. And I think this is one of the challenges that developers often face is they've got maybe a bit of a vision and they've got, perhaps they've started working with an architect, but they haven't always really thought through how are we going to communicate that and how are we going to also communicate about the experience? Because most people want to buy into a place that they feel like they belong to, like Mm. belonging is the highest kind of need that people have when they're choosing a home. So yep. it's really about how do we unlock that? Um, and and what we're, we're really looking to do is to do that in a way that's very genuine. Like we don't want to trick anybody mm. into buying something that they ultimately yep. wish they hadn't bought, but often uh, helping them to uh, conceive and imagine something that, yeah, doesn't yet exist. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's quite an interesting process. And how early are the developers getting you involved? Like, Obviously, they, they vary. Some probably don't. They probably just build it and they think, oh, we can sell it now. And then they doesn't actually work. But how soon are the smart ones getting kind of yourselves involved in actually designing 
the building and the marketing, et cetera, how, how early on? Yeah, well, look, that's a really excellent question because uh, as you often talk about in this podcast, that old build it and they'll come mentality just isn't working, particularly mm. now we're in tighter and tighter residential markets. Mm. And uh, what we're finding is the smart developers are getting us involved very, very early. So I'm working on a number of projects now where the visioning work we're doing, helping the developer kind of have a concept for what this place would be like, uh, happens even before the architecture. So it's uh, sort of a difference uh, between in the past you might have thought of property marketing as we've got the product now help us to sell it. Yep. Whereas what we're doing is moving more towards, you know, real marketing, which is help us understand the potential purchaser, help us understand what this place uh, means in its context of its history and its story, yep. um, and uh, then help us kind of uh, communicate that as a, as a vision, as a concept that can then be used to keep everything on track which is going to align to the final promise of what we want to, you know, sell to our buyers. Mm. And I think research is really, really important because what we're seeing at the moment is with pressures like affordability, with changes in technology, with all of these sorts of things, what people want is radically changing. And so if you're not a developer that's really understanding what's driving the market, you could very quickly get left behind. So it's really important to research that. We have loads of conversations around this because, of course, there's a need for housing and then what we see is a lot of buildings being built that don't necessarily build a product that is in demand from actual owner-occupiers. Um, and there's a lot of talk around the, the changing demographics, the changing requirements of families to live in apartments, the downgraders, you know, downsizers wanting, you know, larger apartments and all those sorts of things. And, and the the need for community and multi-generational living and all that, all those sorts of things. Where does the research start? So it's really interesting because I'm working on a project at the moment, mm. which is uh, down near the Illawarra, and it's quite multifaceted. So what's what we've been doing is consumer research. So yep. going, uh, who do we think the buyers might be? And then doing qualitative research. So actually sitting down with those people, asking them questions, getting them to help tell us the types of developments they'd like to live in. And then also at the same time, we've been involved in community consultation to also understand, well, what's the sentiment of that local area? Because this is quite a large development and, um, you know, the developer is an amazing developer and they want to be really respectful because Mm. a lot of the people who are going to buy into this development are local to the area, exactly like what you're talking Mm. about, like maybe first home buyers or downsizers. And so they don't just want to plonk something in there that doesn't feel appropriate. But I think it's really about having that kind of desire to listen and to understand and then to deliver a product that is, you know, meeting those needs. So, yeah, it starts in research and it starts in um, a genuine desire to shape the product to the user's needs. And I think what we're doing more and more when we're doing place visioning and when what we do is we set out a vision and then we set out sort of key principles of what that development should be like, uh, then the architects and the landscape architects and all the people who get involved in the development, they have guiding principles that everyone's working to that unify that concept very early. So that's a, that's getting into the brief, isn't it? Exactly. So it's not like saying, well, I've got this site and I want to maximise the dollar per square metre I get back on it or the return that I get on it. This is coming at it from a – which ultimately, obviously, if you deliver a product that the market wants, you're going to get a better return, aren't you? But, um, but it's a very different approach. There's more, there's more leap of faith in this side, wouldn't you think? Well, I think 
yeah, there's there's less risk in yeah. actually understanding the market. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's weird. pretty fundamental to those of us who are marketers. Yeah, that's but, you very know. true. Yeah, it's a leap of faith for those who aren't used to spending yeah. money on that sort of research and advice and spending that money up front. Yeah. But, yes, it's, it's common sense. And, and look, at the end of the day, uh, in, in real terms, in terms of how much money it costs to, to create a development, yeah. mm. the investment is well spent, I believe. Is it new, though? You know, like has property marketing, and I know property marketing has always been there, you know, like let's give this building a name and let's sell it, mm. right? Or, you know, <laughs> and there's, the, you know, every, even old buildings in the 80s, yeah, they've yeah. all got names, right? So property marketing has been around for a long time, but I feel like they just built it and then they throw the name on. But yeah. Now I think that the developers are saying we have to build an amazing product to be able to sell it because our target market isn't investors anymore and they won't just buy anything. Is that It's kind of like chicken egg. I feel like the developers are being forced to go this direction rather than them actually understanding that that's actually a good strategy. Yeah, look, I think there's a number of different dynamics at play and a lot of the developers we're working with um, are going this way willingly. Mm. Like they're seeing that there's new models of housing. Um, but I think also it's not just about... Uh, owner occupiers versus um, investors. It's also that I think there was a time where uh, property marketing was quite rudimentary, and mm-hmm. it was like every brand was essentially just a description of the architecture. So mm-hmm. if you had a tall building, you might call it aspect, yeah. or if there was, you know, or if there was kind of like a crazy, I don't know, if it was built like a circle, you call it arc. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, got you. What what we're trying to do is to more make the brand about the emotional connection that you mm-hmm. want the person to have to it or the, the ultimate benefit. So um, even if that doesn't mean that your naming changes, it means the role of the communications, the way that you're telling the story is definitely different. And one of the fundamental changes is that, you know, everything used to be very analogue, right? Like mm. when I first started 20 years ago, believe it or not, um, you know, it was like, what does the brochure look like? What's the display mm. suite like? Like, and everything was about aspirational photography of people, you know, looking out in a balcony, happy with their life, you know, that sort mm. of thing. And and every <laughs> render used to have a Noguchi table. It was kind of like, it was so yeah. cliched. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we're seeing is with that thing you're talking about of often developers wanting to drive down uh, and get the best possible return on their development, that now a lot of architecture has homogenised. Mm. It's like every render of every apartment basically looks the same. Yep. So that's where the role of thinking about the place, thinking about the vision, thinking about the brand and that having a real role to play can really help you create that point of difference and align it to what the market's actually looking for. So we can talk to deep and deeper human needs mm. and that's how people actually make decisions at the end of yeah. the day. So I know that you're very much about the rational and the emotional mind. Mm. Well, if the brand is just a description of the attributes of the development, it doesn't help to engage that emotional thing that creates that real pull for people. So, you know, we want to try and unlock that. But I guess in our practice, because um, Frost is very much a believer in design contributing to smarter cities, like I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but we really want, we really see right now that the decisions that are being made about how people live, how people work, how we're creating cities, that is really, really important. And so mm. our desire is to play a role that's meaningful in that. You know, the same way that someone mm. would go, okay, I could see an architect would be doing that in a way that has meaning and helping a city reconceive itself and how it might, mm. what structures it might need. It's the same thing in what we're doing in brands and communicating to people about, well, you might want to think about living this way rather than how you might have thought of living in the past. Yeah, I guess that's the big opportunity for now is for developers to go away from the easy money, I guess, just building, you know, for the sake of it and just sell to investors to 
actually let's create the housing for the future. And I guess the smart ones are thinking like that, right? They will let's imagine that. And you know, we've got a blank canvas and they're coming to someone like you. Okay. Well, let's create that kind of world. And I guess then you can think about things completely different because you're not just thinking about selling something. You're thinking about kind of creating a sustainable product that you can be known for, I guess. Is that kind of the direction they're trying to get into? Totally. And many of your larger developers understand the value of their brand yep. in terms of then giving uh, a future purchaser confidence in the product that's been created. <laughs> yeah. mm. you know? Which is going to be so much more on the agenda these days after mascot towers and opal towers. And, you How know, can that happen, right? It's yeah. just like... <laughs> but it's, look, I think it's going to happen more because the thing is that if you think about mascot towers, it's 12 years old, right? It's at an age where, you know... Now is when things are going to start happening if they're going to start happening. And unfortunately, the, there's the requirement of the developer and the builder and their obligation has ceased. The people mm. carrying the can are the owners. But, you know, this is not the topic of this conversation. But I actually think that's going to, we're going to see more of it because of those buildings are all getting to that sort of age and a lot of them are built with the same sort of, you know, methodology, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's, let's, let's go back. But, but I think that's a good point in that... Um, the, the developers that we work with, yep. like people like Mervac, mm. and we do a lot of commercial work with people like AMP Capital and, you know, a whole variety of, you know, really reputable developers, like they're very concerned about, mm. you know, those yeah. sorts of issues. But also they're very aware that they have a responsibility um, in the marketplace mm. of the sorts of products they're creating and how that's aligning to community needs. And so, you know, um, those sorts of developers aren't just in it for that quick return. Like yeah. they understand that um, the better products that the better they do, the better it leads to their business. And we were very lucky to work with um, developers like uh, Dr. Stanley Quick, who did Central Park and, yeah. uh, and like those people are real visionaries. Mm. And at the end of the day, like our city needs visionaries like that. Yeah. We need people yeah. who are going to um, look at what might be leading practices uh, offshore like he did and bring mm. that to Australia. Like he brought, uh, you know, people like Nouvelle to Australia mm. where, you know, Sydney often doesn't have the standard of architecture that we should. So, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because especially when you look at Central Park, you know, that's a landmark building now. Yeah. You know, it's so visible. And you go to Melbourne and there's a lot more interesting architecture in Melbourne. You go to even Brisbane, for God's sake, and there's, you know, some more interesting architecture than Sydney. We've been traditionally a bit conservative in terms of what what we've allowed, it's starting to that bottom end of the the city there. You know, the UTS. I love how that that building's been encased, and there's, there's the paper bag building and those sorts of. Is that the real name for it? But um, you know what I mean, don't mm, you? I do, I do. <laughs> so there's there's those sorts of things. Um, that sort of approach is really interesting because that is it's not even just the living in it. That's the fact that this is a, a an edifice that is contributing to our our cityscape now. So there's there's so much more to it than just even simply providing nice places to live. Absolutely. And I think that what we try and do is really unlock the power of creativity in that and help people understand that in today's market, like differentiation is really, really important. Mm. So a lot of people can kind of feel obviously comfortable in their comfort zone, but what we're in today is a society that's moving faster than ever before. So to mm. stand still actually means you're going backwards. So what we often are doing is trying to unlock that uh, power of creative thinking, of how designers look at problems that's maybe different to other people and help um, really, you know, uh, understand the type of society we aspire to be. So, yeah, mm. it can be quite, um, you know, I find what we do very inspiring because for me, um, like I really love Sydney. I really believe that 
Uh, the city can't just stay at one point in time and it's changing, but we have a responsibility to make sure that the things that are being created now will last and will align to what we want to be as a place. You know what I yep. mean? Our aspirations mm. as a city, it's it's really, really important, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole, the Mervax of the world and, you know, they'll be fine. You know, they'll actually see it's a big opportunity because it'll actually push out a lot of the developers that aren't as probably skilled in selling a product and building communities and, you know, that'll just create more demand. I think the... The challenge that they've got is a bit of a PR issue because what they are selling is a product that now has kind of been exposed and, and consumers won't know whether it's a Mervac development or it's a Metricon or it's a, you know, it's a good build or a bad build. And they're probably just worried that, you know, while they're doing the right thing, they're getting thrown in the bag with everyone else. And I think that's going to be the challenge for developers going forward is how they make sure not only they got, you know, visualize an amazing product, but how can they assure that consumers have confidence that they're buying you know, a quality product. And so that's going to be interesting. What are some of the, you know, I guess, you know, you've got, everyone's lifted the game, right? Everyone's got amazing renders um, and everyone's mm-hmm. got amazing, you know, you know, pictures in the domain and things like that. What are kind of some of the, the most forward thinking like VR and things like that? What are some of the most forward thinking ideas that, you know, marketers are using to sell property? Yeah, well, look, I think the big thing that's changed, and you would know this, is the ability to personalise. So, you know, the, the the way that you can generate leads is very different to, you know, before where you had to put an ad in domain and then mm. hope that your potential purchaser would see it. Um, and I think the touch points are changing as well. And obviously the more that that can uh, move and, you know, tell a story rather than just be a flat kind of passive piece of communication definitely changes. I mean, we, we've kind of been very proud that over the past few years, we've kind of done a number of things that were really industry leading at the time. So we were the, one of the first agencies to create an app when we were working on Central Park that yep. would enable buyers to kind of pick a level and then look at that in some detail as a render and then also look at the view and really kind of interrogate yeah. that beyond just, oh, it's a brochure and there's one picture and I'm going to lay down, I don't know, two million for that, mm. you know. Um, and then, yeah, VR as well. So we worked on a development uh, in Parramatta um, a number of years ago where we use VR and it was really interesting because it was a very high number of people that once they had been able to look at that product through VR that then they felt more inclined to purchase because it's just like anything, you want to touch and feel it as much mm. as you possibly can. And just in case listeners aren't aware of what VR is, virtual reality. Yeah, virtual reality. you put those funny looking <laughs> goggles on and yeah. all of a sudden you look like a real weird person sort of space walking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and some people find that a bit of a strange experience. Yeah. And sometimes I think it can just be people trying to generate difference for its own sake. Yeah. But from our, <laughs> from our perspective, it's like, um, it's like, Going back to that area of trust, like Mm. that's the number one thing, isn't it? You know, you want to have that sense of trust. So the closer that you can deliver something that helps people really understand the decision they're making and do that with integrity, that's what we find really important. So, yeah, but uh, I think that the key thing is we need to to understand now that brands move, that they speak, that Mm. they do so much more and that most people, their number one touch point with a brand is going to be their phone. So I don't know about you, but the mm. first thing I do every day is look at my phone. Like it's like my constant kind of connection to the world. Mm. Um, and so we do really need to understand the channels that consumers are using and make sure that we're delivering the most effective communication across those mediums. Um, it's interesting though, because every year we kind of go, is this the year the brochure will be dead? Yeah. And I don't think it will ever die because... You know, you've laid down a considerable sum and you want something to take away in your hand. It's still a thing. You know, and (laughs) and people want to be able to sit down with someone and go, look what I just bought, you know, and Mm. get excited about it. And 
And so I think, um, you know, like there's, I think it, the, the thing is that we can, there's more and more we can do. Yep. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is <clears throat> display suite experiences yes. are also getting much better, um, much more engaging and much more theatrical. And yep. it's interesting because this is a trend we're seeing in retail as well, right, is that mm. people don't just want to go into a shop and look at the product. Mm. They want to go there and have an experience. They want it to have a sense of drama and storytelling. And so um, one of the things that we offer um, in our business is we actually have interior designers. We have very specialised people who have actually worked in things like exhibition design yep. so that when you're looking at that thing of someone like going into that room, like it's like the car sales room, isn't it? Exactly, like it's sort yeah. of like that moment that you want to really get excited, like really also be able to sit down with someone and understand what what exactly am I looking at here. So we have a very, very specialised team who works on that and that's definitely an area that will continue to grow, I believe. And creating the whole event around that display suite, is that something that you guys have helped, you know, can you give yeah, an example of, of where you've done that and then the results that that's kind of created? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the agents like to talk about creating a frenzy. Yeah. <laughs> ah. A frenzy, you know, okay, because. Listen, people. <laughs> <laughs> because you kind of, it's kind of like that thing uh, where you're in David Jones and there's a sale and everyone's yep. trying to get mm. that pair of shoes, right? Um, uh, yeah. So we often uh, work with the developer, with the agents to plan that experience. I mean, um, a lot of the time to even be in that room when they're going to release product, people have had to put down five or $10,000 to even start that conversation. But yeah, on a number of projects that we've worked on, mm. like the whole product has sold out in two hours. Like when yep. we were doing work on Loftus Lane, uh, which is the really amazing actually boutique yep. product uh, down at Circular Key, which that is never going to be repeated. Mm. Like, yeah, two hours and it was all gone. So you're really playing on that scarcity there. Yeah, you are. But and there it, was true scarcity. Yeah. Mm. You know, and it, that's, that's, I mean, you know, down Circular Key, it's ultra high end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know you probably got a huge market that wants it, and so you could have created that. Have you have you done that on more kind of everyday apartments yeah, as well? Absolutely. So um, first two stages of Green Square, we worked with Movac on that as well, and yep. yeah, and it's really interesting because creating that environment that's going to work well for people, um, what you put <laughs> in there. But like as I said, for me, it's always really important that you're very respectful of that purchaser because mm. you know it's a big decision. You want them to love what they've what they've bought into and you want it yeah. to actually work for them, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, that's right. Like you want to be able to deliver on the product that they expected. And the problem with the renders is that if they're, good, if they're too good, people are going to be thinking, you know, this is what I was expecting and they've got this. So there's kind of fine art to, to making sure that you deliver on the product that you're kind of offering, which I think a lot of developers, you know, maybe over promise and then under deliver, but then, you know, that's not going to be a sustainable business model, is it? You know, you're going to start to upset the building and it starts to, you know, compound, I think, over time. What are some of the other things, I guess, on the marketing point of view that you kind of find that really, I guess, affects people to, you know, actually go out and purchase? You know, obviously you can do the VR, you can, but what are some of the other kind of ways that property marketing affects us? Look, I think it's really diverse um, because what you've got to think of and what we're kind of um, trying to help people understand more and more is it's a journey. Like you go through a number of stages. So, you know, People will typically start going, okay, well, I'm looking, I want to look at an apartment. Well, where would I like to look? So they're going to start initially looking at the location and then they're going to start comparing product within that location. And then they're going to probably like to uh, visit a display suite a number of times. And then, do you know what I mean? So it's actually one of the things that we're seeing a big change is really understanding 
mapping that customer journey, understanding every step along the way and how you're going to influence their decision. So things like service are incredibly important. Mm. And historically, the agents, the developer and the marketer are often quite isolated from each other. Mm. They're not talking to each other and they're not understanding that actually for that end user, for the person making the decision, they don't know, oh, there's a marketing agency over here and the salespeople mm. over there. And like they need to feel like it's very coherent. And yep. so, you know, uh, even kind of going, well, uh, what's the agent going to be dressed in? Are they going to look, if you're kind of doing a really hipster, cool development, mm. yeah. like and suddenly an agent comes in and they look like they're in a suit and they look like they're not at all cool, you know, then that's not really <laughs> going to be convincing. Like yep. they'll feel that it's a superficial story for the mm. development. Mm. So, and, and then the other thing is the most powerful tool of all today is advocacy. Yep. You want people to talk about your product and sell it to their friends and sell it to yep. others because... Um, their belief, their excitement, that is something that's priceless. And so, um, you know, it's ironic that sometimes just creating a place in a sales suite where they can do a great selfie, you know, mm. or those sorts of things are becoming yeah. very, very powerful. Uh, and so thinking about social media as part of it as well and thinking also about how are you going to help the purchaser tell the story of why they're bought in this development and why they're really excited about it and share that uh, because that that is um, that advocacy is very very powerful, and how you can you know reach other people. So yeah, we are seeing lots of different things, but I'd say the key yeah. thing is like sitting down and going for every step along the way of that experience that someone's going to have, and it is an experience. Mm. Um, how are we going to make that exceptional? Um, and and sorry, one thing I, I always mention is. I always think about this idea, and I didn't make this up, it's from a guy called Seth Godin, mm. about the word remarkability. Because mm. remarkability not only means it's exceptional, but it means you're going to take the time to tell somebody about it. So what's going to be the thing when they saw your ad or yep. saw your brochure or saw your render or went to the display suite or met that agent who looked like a real person rather than, you know, <laughs> whatever. What, what's going to be the thing they're going to tell somebody and how are you going to manage that remarkability? Because that's the thing that ultimately is going to have the most power. So this is all beautifully created, you know, in terms of a creative, right? And it's a dream and it's a lifestyle. As you said before, you're selling the lifestyle and people have come along and they've seen themselves in there. They've imagined themselves having those lives and being on that balcony with the glass of champagne or whatever <laughs> the hipster does, you know. Oh, I don't have the glass of champagne. They may not. Um, um, They're having hipster artisan beer. Uh, that's it, yeah. craft beer. They're craft. having craft Probably beer. Probably craft beer by Young Henry's. Craft if I... beer um, or some of that really cool gin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Archie Rose gin. But you so, would do a partnership with someone like that, right? You yeah, know what I mean? sometimes. To, to sell yeah. the, the yeah, space Yeah, because this know? is all a lifestyle that you say. You're selling yeah. the lifestyle. So there's, there's all of that happening. And then there's a reality. They move in. They may not be as cool as they aspire to be, you know, and who knows how it happens. But is there any sort of measurement down the track of how successful the branding and the marketing message was in terms of actually creating exactly what was, was imagined? Well, I think that that's one of the things that we're really interested in. And when we create a brand like and a place vision, that doesn't just end when you've sold all the product. Mm. So what we're seeing increasingly is um, places have like place managers that are creating experiences that yep. are looking to the longevity. Um, at the moment, we're working with um, one of our clients on a build to rent product and they're really looking at, well, their obligation to create a community mo yep. more than just to sell an apartment or mm. in this case, at least an apartment. 
Um, so I think this is becoming more and more part of it. And and I think that where you really see that is in resale value. When, you know, you see in some developments, resale value very quickly erodes. Mm. Um, in the current market, it's really unfortunate because in some cases, the initial purchase price that people paid, now when they're exchanging, you know, the value of the property is going down because mm. of what's yeah. been happening. Um, and that's, again, where uniqueness helps to maintain that value. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think that the key thing that we're always trying to communicate is that vision, that brand, it's not a thing that just happens to sell. It's a thing, it's a promise to people and you need to maintain it. And again, because part of what we do is um, create uh, the brand in the built form. So we do things like signage and graphics and placemaking and all this sort of thing too, yeah. that, that we, you know, our best uh, experiences are when we can work really end to end from the very beginning of what's the vision, how do we help you capture what consumers want? How do we think about what this place could be relative to where it is? How do we then articulate that in a way that helps you execute it? How do we then market it to people? How do we then move them in in a way that's great? How do we maintain the experience? How do we embed placemaking into it? You know, how do we, yeah, exactly. So it's integrated throughout the whole exactly. process as opposed to just an advertising campaign slapped on at the end. Yep. Have you ever dealt with developers that have come to you with a product that hasn't been selling and they've tried to retrofit this sort of thing? Um, I'm trying to think of one recently. Uh, yeah, look, there are some cases of that where they have to uh, reframe the product. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, but often we find um, when we get involved in those sorts of projects, it's where they've gone down that very conventional path at mm. the beginning. And so there's actually a lot of room to improve, you know, how that's being done. And I think one of the things that we're really passionate about is there's a real propensity in this area of marketing for it to be very cookie cutter, very mm, expected, yeah. and trends come through. It was like, you know, as I said, I've worked in the industry a long time. Like there was a one point where everything was property as fashion and yeah. it was suddenly like you didn't have that person just sitting on the balcony, you know, a normal looking person or maybe, you know, a slightly better looking person than us or, you know, me. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, we're all very attractive. But, you know, but instead you'd have models who were like suddenly in an evening gown and they were very, you know, they were very like, oh, let's have this amazing model like walking up the stairs to her apartment and, you know, and it was like, oh, we're selling property as fashion, you know. And so like there are real trends that come through and, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is really going against the trend. So at the moment, like everything is hipster. And so it's like anything that gets put on the table that we think looks in that uh, aesthetic or is trying to kind of create that promise. Like we're very, uh, we're very hard on ourselves of saying, look, you won't get cut through if you mm. just suddenly look like everybody else. Like we have to think about what we're really doing here is communicating a story and we need the aesthetic and we need the language and we need everything to have enough differentiation that it will have cut through. So, yeah, it's quite challenging that at times that mm. you can see a really strong trend like we can see at the moment with things like families? hipster. Um, well, you know, that uh, no, what I mean is yeah, a trend in the marketing, you know, the yeah, marketing approach. With, is that yeah. moving more towards now? You know, because hipster would have been great. You would have targeted to more of the first home buyer, like say three, four years ago, that was pushed out of the housing boom. They were desperate to buy something and so – You've got that kind of early 30s couple. The hipster marketing would have worked really well. But now probably the next target market is probably that family market who don't really gravitate <laughs> towards that kind of, I don't really want to be around all 30-year-olds. I want to be around 40-year-olds who have got kids. Are you finding that's where they're, they're moving towards? Yeah, now? look, it's very varied depending on each development, the psyche mm. of that market, right? Because 
for a family desire to decide to move into an apartment is a very big decision. Yeah. Um, like those, the, the bookends of the market, what we call them, uh, it's quite funny because you've got the you've got the hippies, the ex-hippies and the hipsters, mm. and they yeah. actually think really similarly. It's quite yeah. ironic, That's you know. That's hilarious. Um, and so, uh, but then the family market is very mm. distinctive. And I mm. think um, also where a lot of families are moving into these sorts of developments tend to be fringe locations in Sydney. Yep. You know, so... Um, you really have to understand what that place means to them. And in many cases, you know, let's just say they're from an area like Liverpool because we worked on a big development in Liverpool. Like the aspiration is they still feel very proud of their area, but they kind of realise that perhaps there could be a better standard of types of places they could live in in that area, you know, Mm. because when it was developed may, you know, the types of properties that might be there don't align to today's aspirations. So they they want you to... um, capture the ethos and the spirit of that particular place rather than, I think, as I said earlier, plonk a bit of Newtown into, Mm. but they also want it to be aspirational enough. So you do have to spend a bit of time like really Mm. unlocking what is that special thing. And every project will have something that is very particular, that's very special. And that's what you want to lead from. That's kind of where you find that what we call brand idea, like that brand position that enables you to tap into that. But Mm. you do really have to understand that unique emotional need state yep. and 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 product need state of that audience mm. and to genuinely not just be, you know, putting it on the production line, <laughs> like thinking yeah. very mm. deeply about it. And actually that development that we did do in Liverpool, um, it was on the banks of the George's River and it was an old paper mill. And mm. ironically, we called it the paper mill on George's yep. River um, because we didn't need to As trick it up. <laughs> but, but we didn't need to make it any more tricky. But then what no. was really great was... We got local school kids to help um, create imagery that was used in the marketing and we created yep. this great metaphor of a paper boat and that became this really great kind of storytelling vehicle about, you know, um, creating this new kind of future for Liverpool and all those sorts of things. Yep. So it was something that it wasn't just all like um, like the way that we were able to create a meaningful symbol for that development. It wasn't just like literally, oh, there's a sawtooth roof on this building, so that's what we're doing. We mm. kind of created something quite unique and then yep. it was very successful for that's them as well. Sort of yeah. about gentrification or or just the progress of, of an area. Yeah. Um, do developers often consider all of that before they decide to buy a site? Because in reality, I mean, are they doing their numbers and then coming to you or do they incorporate this sort of research into their decision whether that site is going to yield them the profit they require? Look, I think it really depends on the developer. Mm. Um, and I think, look, a lot of, uh, in a lot of cases they are, well, they're, they're, if they're, they haven't gone into the deep psyche of the market, they're definitely looking at the demographics mm. and what the yield they can get from the site is. Yeah. Um, but then, I mean, they're, they're also on a journey of going, you know, what what is the potential of this site? And I think one of the most interesting things that's happening at the moment is Sydney is actually reconfiguring itself mm. in a really dramatic way. Like in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen so much change mm. in what does Sydney mean as a city because mm. you've got the metro happening, you've got the light rail happening. And so transport and also the investment in infrastructure is radically changing Sydney right now. Mm. Um, and so... You know, like areas that perhaps before weren't on a potential purchaser's radar yep. are now becoming very, very viable. Um, and I think that's great. Like we're kind of trying to change that, oh, it's only the inner parts of Sydney which, you know, you'd aspire towards living in, well, for yep. certain people, <laughs> 
you know. Uh, but, but you know, like we're, we're starting to unlock the potential of much more of the city through this investment in infrastructure. And so um, I think it's really uh, changing what how we see our city. And one of the things that we do as well as uh, creating brands for properties is we create brands for places as well. So mm. we've worked with Redfern, for example. We're all in Redfern today yep. mm-hmm. um, on its branding. We did that maybe five years ago. And mm. while we can't say, oh, we're responsible for all of the changes in Redfern, like what you do see is when we were able to start turning around the reputation of Redfern, it unlocked a lot of uh, untapped potential in the area. Interesting. Um, and so who so, was your client? Well, that was actually in a really interesting project where we worked with um, the City of Sydney, the local Chamber of Com- Commerce, the, the Rabbitohs, believe it or not, right. uh, the local the local uh, residents association. Mm. So it was really a, a joint uh, yeah, group of people. Yeah. Um, but we worked uh, about a year or so ago with Canterbury Bankstown on their brand as well, mm. uh, which is very interesting because... Were the Bulldogs involved in that? Uh, no, they weren't. <laughs> Although we did consult them. We did talk to them about it. Um, and it was so fascinating because... Um, in an era where technology is dominating everything and yeah. change is happening so quickly, it's actually places like that that in some ways have more potential because there's mm. less in the ground, there's younger kind of more um, aspirational markets that really want to spend on things that are new and different. And mm. so there's some very visionary things that are happening in those mm. areas on the fringe, um, which, you know, I say fringe, it's actually what we're That's now calling not even the, the middle ring. It's you know? like the... Yeah. yeah. Out of inner west now. <laughs> totally, totally. And uh, I think areas like Bankstown are going to radically change mm. um, without losing what makes them great because for me it's interesting being a long-term Sydney sider and I have to confess I live in Newtown and Newtown in the 20 years I've lived there has changed so much. Hasn't it? And so has Marrickville where mm. we used to go to these areas because they had a really interesting mix of people and there was a lot of multiculturalism in those areas and goths and punks and all that sort of stuff and now you need to go to places places like Bankstown to kind of have those family run businesses where you go into like what looks like someone's home almost and mm. like you eat off a table that's just got a really basic setup but then you eat the most incredible food and so you know it was interesting when we did that project because people were saying I now go to those areas for those really authentic experiences that perhaps mm. aren't so easy to find or even have just become too expensive in other parts of Sydney so and social yeah. media how does um you know, because this obviously is proliferation of, you know, we're not going not going away from it. How is that kind of, and property is one of those life stages where you do want to tell people, right? You know, it's like the first thing people do is when they buy a home, they get that sold sticker is they put it on Facebook, like they're having a baby or they're getting married, et cetera. How are you Insta. kind of, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I'm on Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Facebook's gone. You yeah. should know that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So how do you tap into that? You know, it's not bragging. I guess it's that ego of when they want to tell people that they've purchased an off-the-plan apartment or something like that. <laughs> how have you kind of figured out how to tap into that so they actually share their friends, you know, and they tell people that they've purchased a, a development? Have yeah. you done that before? or Look, I think what we're trying to do, first of all, is create content that is really kind of desirable on Instagram. So you do need to have a social media strategy as part of when you're doing your property marketing. Mm. Um, and you have to create content that is both desirable and useful at times. Mm. Um, I think it's also like thinking about even like the staging of a space of like where is that place where they they can create that great photo. Like Mm. even back in the days when we did Central Park, for example, um, there was a massive, I don't know if you remember, but they did an amazing display suite and in front of it we created these huge letters that people could Mm. stand in front of and were kind of almost sculptural. So I think one of the things that 
we all have to be thinking about is things like Instagram and Instagram is actually moving more and more towards video, obviously. Mm. Uh, and as our, you know, every channel is becoming more and more about video. Mm. Um, but it's kind of like, how do you um, create the stage for where someone might want to post their own thing? And yeah, you can't be too big brother <laughs> about yeah. it. Like people have got to genuinely feel it, but you need to understand the role of each uh touch point and channel and how you yep. can unlock its, its potential definitely as part of your strategy. And sometimes that might be in things like what's our event strategy for this mm. development? So, um, you know, are we going to have, you know, uh, other things happening here that will be things that would be good to post, you know? So yep. what are other things that you can do kind of uh, create more uh, noise around noise, you know, talk around, yeah, around right. talkability around the brand? Um yeah, so it's just really understanding how to use that channel best. But, I mean, my son the other day sat me down and gave me a lesson on Instagram and he told me hashtags are, are over. I was really? 15. It's like I went, really? You know, so like it's kind of like. What's instead of? Oh, well, now it's all about your story and how you use your story and how you use buttons that people can click on and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, and not saying that obviously we have experts within our team, but I, I think the key thing that I'm trying to say here is, some of these channels are moving incredibly quickly yep. mm. and uh, sometimes you're kind of in a bit of a test and learn approach. So it's like, okay, well, let's try this on this channel. I think the, the, the great thing about social media in particular is it's fast and it's often quite cheap. And so, mm. and it's the, the real investment is often in people to be there to create content rather than, you know, like that big investment to print a brochure or those sorts mm. of things. So it's a much more, um, without using cliches, agile mm. channel to be using and a way and something that you can be using in a much more test and learn way. So, you know, that's the sort of thing that we're always looking to do is figuring out how do we unlock that potential in new ways. So let's say I've, I've, I'm thinking about buying, I've hit the stage of my life where I'm, you know, be thinking about buying something. I've gone on some website and then you've tagged me as a, potential buyer and maybe I've gone onto your website and now you're retargeting me on Facebook or something you're like being that. Stalked. Have you, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of what happens. And then, you know, and then, then maybe I joined the uh, newsletter, right? Now you're advertising me on the newsletter. You're sending me some videos. You may be giving me a VR link. Have uh, developers been successful though in creating, you know, that lead all the way through to the sale without any display suites, without anyone even, you know, basically the whole Without talking online. to a person. Yeah. Even. So basically someone's buying a property and signing up to like a million dollar place without ever really speaking to anyone. So I have to say I haven't seen yet yeah. that thing where you cut out the salesperson. Mm. I do think for a lot of us, we still want to talk to a person at mm. one point. Mm. Like I, I do really agree with you um, about increasingly we're going to see AI, we're going to see uh, technology playing more and more of a role in getting information to people. And as you say, uh, helping to service leads and serving them new content, all of that sort of stuff. But yeah. I, I, I'm not sure when that time will come. Mm. Uh, it might be generational, right? Because it might just be like, I can remember, yeah. <laughs> I'm showing my age again, but I can remember <laughs> a time many, many years ago where you'd kind of think twice about booking a flight online. Mm. You know, and now I just go, really? Like, that's just, it's I don't hilarious. ever it's go just, and see yeah, a so saying, yeah. Yeah. travel agent, right? I, yeah. I wouldn't even, I don't know how travel agents still survive, to be honest. Um, but but I think, are we going to get to that point in property where we're going to cut out the agent altogether? I think that that's going to really depend on um, the types of people who are buying and what sort of confidence they want. And there is something about looking someone in the eye and having mm. that sense that you can ask that question you really wanted to mm. ask. 
Um, so no, I haven't yet seen that. Yeah. But will it come? Potentially. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I was listening to a podcast recently. It was a financial advisory podcast. I can't remember which one. And they were interviewing someone who does research in that space. And he was saying that, like in financial advice, people. There's a lot of online stuff, but fun, fundamentally at the point where they're going to, they want to make big decisions. They still want to sit down and talk to a human being. Mm. So hopefully yeah. that, you know, hopefully agents don't do themselves out of a job by, you know, continuing to provide, you know, trustworthy advice and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Although they are selling, of course, in this mm. context. Do you know that thing about um, the agent, like, you know, talking themselves out of a job? Mm. A lot of what our job is is to get the buyer to the agent. Right, yeah. yes, okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes uh, there'll be decisions made about how much do you want to release through other forms of communication because um, I think that, uh, yeah, we're trying to take them on the journey. We're trying to inform them. We're trying to give them as much information as possible. But there is still, I think, a lot of respect for that that human interaction, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think uh, like we all know these websites are coming. That mm. you know we're talking about that the um, the homeowner might be able to completely cut out the agent. You know, I think potentially you can see that when you're just selling your own home and you feel like you can market that to an individual. Yeah. Whether we're going to see that with these larger, more complex, mm. more community style developments, where mm. you know something on the scale of Green Square, I think you know uh, we're a long away from that in that area because you you know you you do need to be able to communicate to people more than just it's a three bedroom house do you know what I mean like you need to be able to tell a much bigger story of what's coming and so yeah so on the marketing side of it you've got marketing which is deeply integrated into the entire concept of the development and and is is deeply rooted in actual market research at the outset as in terms of providing and delivering a product that is needed and desired and all that sort of stuff then there's the other type of marketing, which is Band-Aid marketing. We sort of touched on that a little earlier in terms of developers that just build something and then go, right, I want you to brand it. Now, and I fully appreciate that most of your clients don't fit into that bucket. But from a consumer's point of view, how do they determine the difference? Because, you know, if, if everybody's online, if they, if they are, you know, predominantly going through this process online as well until they actually get to a display suite, but even if they do get to a display suite, that's not the actual product you know what I mean? That that's not mm. it. They're they're buying, like you said before, they're buying a dream. They're buying the lifestyle. How does a consumer determine the difference? I think the question I think you're asking is how do they tell the difference between good and bad marketing, but also a good and a bad product? Yeah, mm. and I think, it is about the design. I understand. <laughs> that, I think you're going to find that the bad marketing is pretty obvious because it all looks the same. Mm. Like it just feels like it's come off a production line, you know, mm. and also. I think the place you see it the most is in the language of how they talk about it. Right. You know, it, yeah. everything just is exactly the same. And, and, and that's one of the areas that we work on the most is how you describe the product. And we help, we often, um, like let's just go back to if we were creating a brochure or something, we often try not to use all those superlatives and to write things in a more editorial way. Mm. Like you read in a magazine that's more authentic to someone who's trying to find out about something. So, yeah, I think that thing when it's just... I've read this sales pitch a million times before and outstanding views and well, sounds the same, you know, same, 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 same. Exactly. Like that's when you know that perhaps that the level of effort hasn't been put into thinking about it in that deeper way. Mm. Um yeah, and, and you'll start to feel that, I think, very quickly when you really feel like you're being really sold to mm. rather than communicated to. Like and I think this is one of the things that we're seeing increasingly is um people want 
more authentic brands, they actually really respect utility of information. Like they just want to know. Mm. Like they they want yep. they want things to be useful. But I guess what um, they need to do then is look at more than one um, development. So like if there's only one development in the area that they want to buy in, for instance, they need to go and look at developments in other areas to sort of really test that idea of does it sound same, same as everybody else's or is it really a much more of an intrinsically different offering? Yeah. And and I guess at the end of the day too, like think about how closely that aligns to their values and to what they're looking for from their lifestyle. And I think also think not just for today, but like how long do I see myself living here and how long is going to work for what I'm mm. looking for, um, particularly when you're potentially going into a newer development where it might be staged and where, you know, d- day one it may not all be there, but getting in early might mean you're going to get in on something that's going to end up being fantastic and you've mm. had the vision to get in early enough. <laughs> there, um, there's an element of, of, there's a big element of risk with that because, you know, if it doesn't end up transpiring and it actually becoming the promise, you know, but there's obviously a leap of faith in that regard. I know there's a couple of buildings that, you know, we've bought for for clients um, or maybe even some that we haven't actually bought in but we were aware of. Like, for instance, Moore Park Gardens. Now, I honestly don't think I've ever bought in there, to be honest, but I've looked at a number of them. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, well, but the thing is with that, what's interesting is that you talk to people that live in that building and that complex is that they, and that's one of the original big, that was a Mervac, I'm pretty certain. You get people upgrading within the complex. Mm, They love it. Yeah. And mm. so that's renters and owner-occupiers. Once they're in, they're in for life. Mm. And so that's something that's interesting in some of these compl- these more successful developments as well. There's another one. Horizon's um, a massive one like that as well. Yeah, yeah. And there's another one uh, in Surrey Hills. And it's on Pelican Street. I can't think of the name of it for the minute. But um, that's another one that people tend to upgrade within the building. So when you've got an experience of living in a building or a complex where you don't want to leave it, that that's really telling. And those... I don't know whether they were necessarily designed specifically with that in mind or or that's just evolved over time, you know what I mean? And so I think when, certainly when we look at older complexes, when we're looking at buying for clients, is we, we do consider the, the, how it's evolved over time and that's I guess that's what you're trying to create, isn't it? Yeah, because it's about your identity at the end of the day and so if you really relate to that mm. place and you really relate to the complex you live in, it says a lot about who you are and I think... You were saying earlier that a lot of people are moving away from houses and they're moving into apartments. Um, a lot of that is because today we just don't have the time mm. to maintain mm. a home. Um, and what the research shows is that people want that amenity in their uh, community, like they want it adjacent to their home. So mm. instead of having a house that's got a backyard that you you know every day look out on the weeds and go, oh, I can't maintain this, yeah. <laughs> um, you buy into a development, it's all beautifully designed, and then you've got an amazing park that gives you that same amenity. It's adjacent to your home, but you don't have the responsibility for it. And so this is the thing that we're really seeing in terms of what's driving that big change is that people, you know, we're all living very accelerated lives Mm. and um, we want to spend more on experiences rather than things. So, you know, we've had that whole movement where people are throwing everything out, as mm, we know. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. name? The condo or whatever yeah, that yeah. effect. Does um, it spark joy? Yeah, exactly. So I'm you not know, sure. That's that's that whole <laughs> thing of it's almost like we're so mentally overloaded mm. that we want to simplify yeah. the places that we live 100%. in. The minimalist and that's, movement. 
Yeah, and that's yeah. why apartments often respond to that need. You can't fill, fill them with stuff. But at the same time, <laughs> one of the biggest growing industries is self-storage. So people keep so buying true. stuff and stuffing it into yeah. self-storage. Yeah. Yeah. But one day when I'm in a bigger apartment or a house. sustainable kind of design and, you know, do people now, you know, people wouldn't have cared, say, five years ago if the building was made of sustainable materials or if it's got a seven-star energy rating. But are you finding that a lot of the developers are now at least switching on that those things do matter? Absolutely. And I think um, in many projects we work with, sustainability is almost becoming table stakes. Like it's just an expectation. And I think one of the things I was going to say is in this shift to apartments, while some of us kind of go, oh, there are all these apartments going up all over Sydney, Mm. do I feel okay about that? It is a much more sustainable way of living when Mm. we have denser forms of property, you know, and if we design them really, really well, you know, (laughs) um, then uh, it's actually creating really vibrant cities. Like you think of some of the best cities in the world, like New York and New York, you know, the apartment in New York is, you know, like it's kind of what, you know, a lot Mm. of New York's really about, you know. So if we start thinking about sustainability isn't just about materiality or, you know, recycled rainwater or solar, but it's also about what are the models of housing we're living in and how efficient are they for our city, then that sort of becomes a very big part of the equation, I think. Um, and so, yeah, locating people close to where, they want to w- where they're working or where they want to go out so they can walk there and walkability is becoming a really big mm. um, factor in um, how successful a place might be. Um, all of those sorts of things are very, very important. And I think right now as a city... Um, when we talk about the work we're doing about having to be really aware of the sorts of cities we want to live in, like for all of us, I think, uh, you know, we're all thinking about this question of how sustainable is Sydney, are, are the cities that we're living in and what can we do to make it more sustainable? And I think for some of that, that means kind of having to reevaluate, yeah. you know, what are the choices we're making on every level and, you know, how we the place we choose to live in is going to be one of those choices. Mm. You mentioned earlier that belonging is the highest need that we have when buying a home. I'm presuming that's come out of some research. Yeah, <laughs> it is actually. Um, when I went to uh, recently when they were doing the Vivid Ideas conference, they were sharing a whole lot of research and it, believe it or not, it was actually IKEA that had done some of this yeah. research, uh, which is interesting. Um, and they had done a whole lot of research into what people are looking for from their homes. But that comes out of... Um, there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. you're all aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it, their research, and but also over many years of research, we know that that's the the deepest kind of one of the most deep mm. uh, needs we all have mm. is this sort of feeling that we can, uh, you know, be valued for who we are and feel like we belong. And it's very interesting to me because I see Sydney as a very tribal city. I don't mm, know if you feel it like is, that. It is, absolutely. Uh, which is why I live in Newtown. <laughs> That's my <laughs> tribe, you know. Um, and uh, although increasingly I'm starting to question that. But, oh, don't, uh, don't. I'm in Newtown too. Uh, so good, okay. <laughs> we belong to each other. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it really it manifests who you are. Yep. And um, and so, yeah, you want to go to you want to go home every day and go, wow, I love where I live. I I, I bump into my friends on the street, the person who gives me my coffee, mm. although I don't drink coffee, so gives me my herbal tea. They, you know, they... Chai. Yep. My chai <laughs> yes. latte. Yeah, but I'm a vegan as well, right? So, you oh know, God. Just, you definitely I definitely feed the Newtown boy. I'm, I'm an omnivore <laughs> in Newtown. See? Oh, yeah. Newtown's diverse. <laughs> We're so diverse. Uh, you know, um, so, you know, it's it's so important uh, to feel like you find your place in the world, isn't mm. it? You know, and, and, and find giving people 
places that they feel safe and they have a sense of comfort and they feel like they go home every night and their needs are met. Like that's a really, really yeah. important thing that we're all working towards, I think. Yeah, it, it is. And, and yeah, it's interesting because I guess I, I question, you know, like so creating a sense of belonging, i.e. creating an identity that people, okay, so chicken and the egg, are you creating the identity that people can identify with and then say, oh, I will belong there, or is it people craving to belong and go, oh, I wouldn't mind belonging there? Yeah, look, I think you're right. It's a bit chicken and egg to figure that out. Um, but I think some of the best practice examples we're seeing, um, and they're always in Scandinavia, mm. aren't they? But yeah. what, we're, what we're seeing is that divide between the developer and the people who might live in the development is getting closer and closer. Yeah. So right. often, uh, like we've got the Nightingale project, for example, that's happening in Victoria. I was wondering if you knew about yeah. Nightingale because, yeah. you know, that's to me is like the, you know, the epitome of where things are going, mm. you know, where the... You know, they're not even building the building until they've engaged with the community. And they're almost, the buyers who are actually buying the building are actually almost affecting how the building's going to be built yeah. because they're, you know, there's surveys along the, are you liking this? Do you really want six car places or are you happy mm. with four? Are you happy with, do you want six bike racks or do you want 12 bike racks or do you want, so like, you know, the community is almost building the building, which I think's, you know, just, very interesting. It's the it's the ultimate, isn't it? Um, and it's kind of that as process of as long as it actually it works built. in the end. You need still you still need good architects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but but this idea of co curation, yeah, and inviting the end user into the decision making process is something we're going to see more and more mm. of. And we don't only work in residential property; we work in commercial property a lot. And we're really seeing that trend in commercial, where yeah, um, you know, at the end of the day, well, the WeWorks and and all yeah. of that sort of. I'm, I'm gathering that's sort of in that direction. Absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, but even beyond that, even um, projects that we work on that are quite large developments, um, you know, they want to, rather than again, that thing of, oh, here you go, it's all done now. Would you like to move in here? Mm. It's like, well, where do you see your culture heading? And, you know, like they're understanding that uh, millennials and younger talent, they see, well, I mean, the fundamental thing is that work and life is, is just all blurred. Mm. Yeah. And so that's in WeWork, you go, okay, well, now an office feels like a home. Yeah. You know, and for many of us, our home feels like an office because we're working <laughs> at home more. Yeah. So that sort of blurring of work and leisure that's happened through technology, like that is manifesting itself in many, many ways in mm. the sorts of spaces that people want to be in. So, mm. um, yeah, it's having a really profound influence on a whole variety of property at the moment. But that's incredibly exciting. And yeah. I think the fact that in this era where technology has kind of unleashed the power of the consumer, of the end user, it's in incredibly exciting because it, it, it brings us all closer together. Uh, it, it, it enables um, quite what otherwise would be quite small off audiences to sometimes aggregate and get what they want, like what's happening in Nightingale. Mm. You know, it just, it just kind of creates this whole new era of potential and, I always sort of go, look, we're almost at 2020. We're almost 20 years into a not-so-new century. Mm. But I think we're still <laughs> in the formative years of what yeah. will this century be like. Mm. And I think some of these things, we're starting to get a flavour now for what that's going to be, you know. And, and the things that we're now calling disruption are going to just become normal, you know. Mm. And, and then they will be disrupted again exactly. at an increasingly faster pace. Exactly, mm. exactly. And, and that's where I think, though... The home, the place that we live in, will always be a, our place 
that we need to go to escape and to yeah. manifest our sense of self. Our sanctuary. And yeah, it's our sanctuary, it's our space. And that's where I think, you know, more and more, well, how do we show people the potential of what that can be beyond it just being a box, you know? Like what's the potential that could be in terms of a community, in terms of where you might live in the city, in terms of the choices you might make that could be radically different to those that we used to make in the past when it was sort of much more, you know, suitable for that century, like the yeah. old, you yeah. know. Three... Well, it was more prescribed. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think that's what property's interesting, though. If we we're going to cut it all down, it all comes down to that's actually a home for someone and it cr- creates a whole life for them and things like that. So it's probably what you love in terms of helping people buy properties. Mm. What I love the most is, you know, helping them live a life that they want to live and, you know, property's a huge element in, in creating that life. I guess just with the development side, I feel like, you know, we've just missed a trick because we're switching onto this in 2020 when we've been building for the last 30 years stuff that hasn't really, Mm. you know, thought this through and we haven't created communities. We've just created high rises. And, um, you know, I'm really, you know, optimistic if I was, you know, a developer going forward because, you know, we're going to keep growing our population. We've run out of land anywhere near the city. So our only option is to build and we've got an opportunity to build great stuff. It's just... Unfortunately, you know, they've built not great stuff for so long is that, you know, it's just been a huge opportunity missed. And I think a lot of people, our listeners will think we're very anti new property. And, you know, we have been, you know, because we know what's been built over the last 30 years. But if we're going forward, you know, maybe we will change our tune because a lot of the new developments in the future, I think will be better. You know, they will have to lift their game a lot. And I think it's very exciting to, to, because we don't know what that's going to be, right? You know? Yeah. And I think like, Having worked on Central Park, Mm. which was very visionary, like that's got um, like incredible green credentials. But I remember when, uh, and look, this is, you know, many years ago because this is when it was just like a sketch. And I remember um, meeting uh, the um, designer who created all the green walls on that building and I remember everyone going, is that going to work? Like is anything (laughs) going to grow? You know, and look at it now. It's beautiful. And, (laughs) And the whole concept of that, which I love, was about creating a bouquet for the city. Mm. It was like that was the concept. And I think I think there are some good developments out there. Like I think that yeah, something is, like yeah. Central Park has been, it's really like a flagship of how to do it well because they've done like some very kind of large towers. They've done some smaller uh, elements. Mm. Uh, they've got uh, reuse of uh, heritage properties and mm. that hasn't quite come to fruition. And then you've got Kensington Street, which to me is one of the most interesting. I love it, yeah. Uh, places to dine and go mm. out in Sydney, you know, and so you know it can it can be done well, but you do need visionaries at the head yeah. of it, you know. Yeah, there's one, something called like I mean, for our listeners to listeners like we live, which is WeWork's kind of living area, and you know that's an example where you know it's a subscription model. So you know there will be um, at a time point in time where you basically just pay a subscription, and you know your washing's done. If you go away, your cat will get you know fed. Mm, um, you know idea. all the basically <laughs> the house is kind of run. You don't have to worry about paying for the internet bill or the gas, mm. etc. Just one fee a month, and you get all these facility of services. And you know the good thing is when you create that, you know the better product is more services. Then everyone's got to keep up in their game, right? And all the new developments every year will have to get better to kind of differentiate. And so I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see where developments go because um, you know we're just going to keep demanding higher and higher you know, functionality, I guess. And I think that the fundamental thing about like the we lives and built to rent, all those things is going to be in the psyche of the buyer of them seeing their home is their primary form of investment. Mm. You know, like that's for many of us, 
we don't just buy a home as somewhere to live, we buy it as something to invest in. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of people are always looking at that rational side of their purchase too. Um, I think, you know, we're, you know, we've still got this affordability question, which is really top of mind for many people. Mm. Um, and we've got that service thing coming in as well too. So there are going to be all these different options for people. Uh, it's going to be uh, something that's going to stand the test of time, I think, of how Australians see, you know, is their primary investment their home or are mm. they going to look for other ways to invest? Mm. And I think um, with the recent changes that have been happening in residential property in Australia, like some people are seriously questioning that. And I know... Yep. The work that we've been doing uh, on build to rent, like many people do choose to rent. They yep. don't just do it because they feel like they can't afford a home. They're going, well, actually, by being a renter, you know, I get all of these different choices. But one of the things that I think is very dis disappointing is that renters have often been treated with a lot of lack of respect. Yep. And now we're going to see new disruptive models come in that do respect the renter. Yeah. And uh, I think that, again... Um, some large developers are going to put weight behind that. They're going to shift the category in a really major way, in a mm. very exciting way. And so, yeah, there's just going to be more real choice out there uh, for people, you know, in terms of really viable ways to live. Mm. Um, and I think that the key thing that I really think is great about this time is the empowering of that consumer, mm. empowering the renter, uh, empowering the buyer, yeah, yeah. educating them, uh, making sure that they're, um, you know, able to make good decisions and that leads to a respectful relationship and I think that's best for everybody. Well, know? that's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. <laughs> and, in fact, we recently interviewed Andrew Price, who's a managing partner of EY, about a, about a, some research that, that he was a co-author of around that whole is renting better than buying and it's about stimulating those bigger conversations and the more, you know, greater thought, if you like, in terms of what the future is going to look like. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Kat, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Well, I mean, the biggest thing that we find is um, when people don't stay on track. That's that's the biggest thing we find is mm. that often people start. Are you talking about your clients? Or I'm talking about, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that they start ambitious and creative mm. and then over time right. they get more and more Safe. falling back into their comfort zone. Mm. And it really is that thing I was talking about before that, what feels comfortable means that it's been done. So yeah. we don't want to put people into areas where they feel like they're taking huge risks, but they do need to, you know, like open out their horizons a little bit wider. And one thing I would encourage <laughs> uh, people to think about is that not always everyone that's involved in a development are the right people to make decisions about marketing. Like yeah. sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they just don't know how to look at aesthetics well or they don't know how to engage with what the new latest channels are or those sorts of things. And so they often fall back on things that they're comfortable with and that will exclude newer ways of reaching people. So you really need to make sure that you're engaging with experts and that you ha also have expert marketers within your team mm. that are really up to speed with what's, you know, the newest ways to sell with mm. pe to people because, you know, you can't, the, the same consumer that's going to go out and buy an Apple Watch and use all the way that Apple talks to them, they're the same people that are going to go and buy a new apartment 
you know, but if you're talking to them in the way that you used to talk to them in, you know, even 1990, like you are very antiquated. So, yeah, it's just about really making sure that the people who are making decisions are well equipped to mm. make those decisions, but also that they understand that today safe is risky. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I love it. Safe is risky. Oh, right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Kat. That's been a really enlightening conversation. I thought we were just going to talk about property marketing and, you know, maybe we can have a bit of a dig <laughs> at you, but no, we didn't get that we didn't get that opportunity at all. We really got to talk about how enlightened developers who want to differentiate themselves and their, pro- and their product, you know, the things that they're doing in order to create, you know, I guess the city of the future. So thank you very much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... This was a very interesting conversation with Kat all around property marketing. And, you know, the cynic in me is always thinking, okay, you know, um, we're being marketed to, um, the elephant is being stimulated. (laughs) Um, And... And so you need to be aware of it, even though, you know, there's a lot of virtue in terms of the the research that's been done, in terms of the type of property that needs to be developed, the type of, you know, the type of community, all that sort of stuff. I see a lot of merit in that. But I think from a buyer's point of view, just be very aware of how your elephant is being motivated. There were two things um, that I just picked out of um, our interview with Kat. And one is that she did talk a lot about... Uh, social proof. She talked a lot about sharing moments and opportunities for purchases of, you know, any property really, but brand new in this instance, to be able to talk about what they did and explain what they did and brag about what they did, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's social proof. I think she used the word advocacy. And and I think you have to be careful of that because I've heard a lot of people talking about, um, you know, they bought into a building and because, you know, we also... We have this bias that if we've made a decision, we want to look to reinforce that that was a good decision, right? And so we truly believe it, even if it may or may not have been a good decision. And so because we have that internal bias, we will go and encourage other people who might be in the same situation as us to do the same thing because A, it makes us feel good because our friends are doing it, but B, it also feeds back into that idea that I want to reinforce that I made a good decision in the first place. So it's very much about the subconscious here. So look, once again, I'm not saying that necessarily it's all bad, but I just want everyone to be very aware of how this social proof feeds into the elephant, feeds into our subconscious decision-making. And it's always best to be much more aware of it than unconscious to that. The other thing that she did, she mentioned that uh, one of her clients uh, were talking about creating a frenzy and we didn't really get into that sort of that whole idea of fear of missing out and the, and the idea of buildings being able to sell out within two hours, you know, at, at these launch events. And uh, she talked about one which was down in Circular Key with obviously scarcity, a very scarce site and obviously whatever they can build on there were very scarce uh, in terms of property. So it stands to reason that that might be high demand for that sort of property and they would sell out very quickly. But she also did say at the first two stages of a green square were also marketed in much the same way. Now, I don't know how many stages green square has, but I suspect it's a lot more than two. And I think that that's something that buyers need to be very aware of as well. When you're, you're 
being drawn into that frenzy of, um, you know, a marketing event that is designed to sell out, uh, you know, early stages of a new development, really stop for a moment and go, right, how many stages will there be after this first or second stage? Because that is really what's going to impact on your capital growth potential and even on your, in the valuation when it comes to settlement. Because, of course, the more there are, it gets back to that scarcity, the less scarce. And even if it is a great community and even if it's a great development, you know, put together by a really good developer and builder, um, that sheer volume of stock is going to have a long-term implications in terms of your wealth. Join us for our next episode when we talk about co-living. What is co-living? Is it the future of living? Is it a good opportunity for investors? Now, we've touched on this topic in a number of our episodes over the, the last year or so, but this time we're actually going to be talking with Ed Fernan, who is the CEO of a company called Uco, who specialise in the co-living space. So tune in if you want to know what the future of living looks like. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.